Welcome to the Acro Files, our continuing series of podcasts and interviews with founders and important people in the history of the American College of Real Estate Lawyers, which was founded in 1978 by a group of 18 practitioners to get together and, and be able to exchange insights and stories and experiences on the developments in the real estate industry over the past 40 plus years of the college. Today, I'm really pleased to be in, uh, as our guest, Portia Morrison, my partner and colleague at DLA Piper for many, many years. Um, and welcome, Portia. Thank you, Jay. So, Portia, um, while, while you weren't there, before we talk about ACRO, we're going to talk a little bit about you um, and get some, get some history of, of, of you and share with people um, some of your background, which I know they will find of interest. So tell us a little bit, Portia, about um, where you were born in your early life and how you got started. Well, <clears throat> I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, where all my family on both sides had lived for many, many generations, actually, um, but grew up in Tennessee. Um, I, because I am of an age where girls went to college so that if, God forbid, your husband should die, assuming, of course, that you were going to have a husband, uh, you would be able to support yourself by teaching school. So I can't say that I had long-term aspirations to be a lawyer um, and to have a career in law. Um, but by the time I was finished with college and graduate school um, and had worked for a couple of years, um, I really felt as though, of course, I've I, the, what I pictured myself being was a civil rights lawyer, um, working with civil rights, women's rights um, for the EEOC or something like that. Um, but I spent my one of my summers uh, in law school as a summer clerk at, at what was then Rudnick and Wolf, now part of DLA Piper. And of course, because it had such a strong real estate practice, I quickly perceived that the people I really wanted to work with were practicing in the real estate area. So that's where I landed. So be before we get to talk about Paul Rudnick and some of the great people you worked with back back in the days, I, I noticed, so you tell us a little bit first about, I'm sure not a lot of people know Agnes Scott, which I know is a great love of yours, having served on the board and done a lot. Tell us a little bit about how what, what that school was like and how you ended up down there. Well, a woman's college for me, this is kind of a strange thing to say based on what I said about my career aspirations, but... Um, it was kind of a natural choice. I didn't, I didn't, to tell you the truth, I was having a really good time in high school and I had a hard time getting enthusiastic about college. So I applied early decision. Agnes Scott is a woman's college in, the, in Atlanta. Um, and um, it's been around for uh, a hundred and since about 1889, I think. Um, it has a, a strong uh, tradition. It's not a church school, but it has a strong Presbyterian tradition, as do a lot of educational institutions, Davidson, uh, Princeton. Um, and um, so it, it just seemed like a natural. I, at the time I decided to go there, I had no idea what a good choice it was going to be for me, because to go to a, women's, a woman's college, particularly in those days, was extremely helpful 
every leader was a woman. Every academic superstar was a woman. Every star athlete was a woman. So you graduated truly believing that you could do anything that you wanted to do. And certainly um, the academic preparation was excellent. I, I went to graduate, I have a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin and my law degree is from University of Chicago. So it was turned out to be an excellent choice for me. So, so we'll come back to that, that foundational support for what it was like being a woman in a men's profession. But I also noticed, so you, you took almost, I think, 10 years between getting your master's and finishing law school. So there was a gap. You, that's when you were teaching or you're doing that? No, well, <laughs> I did while I was fooling around, get an MAT thinking that maybe I was going to have to teach, but just ne- I did not want to do it. And so my, I was very, very lucky in the jobs that I had. I, uh, while I was, well, while I just finished <clears throat> graduate school, I started working for this wonderful professor, actually the uh, head of my husband at that time his uh, department, which was urban and regional planning at University of Wisconsin, which was a very strong uh, department. And I was supposed to be kind of an editor for him. He was a Finnish guy whose English syntax was not great, Um, but he ended up just treating me like one of his graduate students. And it was a wonderful friendship that lasted for many, many years until he died actually. However, the urban and regional planning background was pretty helpful. And I did, I worked, I had a couple of other jobs in that area. The one non-planning job that I had in that time, I think, if I'm remembering right, was um, when we were living in D.C. for a couple of years. And I worked for a a publishing company, which was a Prentice Hall subsidiary, Um, but mainly in urban planning. And, and what's, what, what was the trigger if there was one that said, okay, I'm going to go to law school and maybe be a civil rights lawyer, or you know, like you said? Well, I really didn't have any real credentials in urban planning. I mean, I was, it was, I was doing what I was doing by the seat of my pants, pretty much. Um, so I started to, I, I think the real transition was I started to get rid of that Southern woman mentality um, and realized that I was probably going to be working for the rest of my life. And I wanted a career where I really had the right credentials and could really dig in and make a lifelong uh, uh, journey of it. So that was really the impetus for law school. And did you, when you were in law school, right, did you continue sort of focusing on urban planning, real estate property type issues? No, I really didn't. I, 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 of course I had a lot of required courses, but I also tended to try to cover as many bases as I could. Um, the one thing that I didn't take in law school that I that would have been useful was bankruptcy, but the code was completely rewritten about the time I graduated, and so it wouldn't have done, done me any good anyway. Okay. So and was your first job from law school at Rudnick and Wolf? Yep. Wow. I started in 1978 and uh, was there from then until I stopped working at the end of uh, 2009, realizing that the circumstances in our industry were such 
that nothing fun was going to happen in the next few years. Um, so at that, I had, I was already, as you remember, had cut back, although it was strange. I was supposed to be working only part-time and I got some of the coolest and most interesting deals of my life. Um, and so that, that was a fabulous, I don't know, four years or so that I, that I, uh, continued. And then of course the bottom fell out of everything. Well, that's because you were one of the most coolest, most interesting and talented players <laughs> there. Um, so I want to talk about how you ended your career also. But so you get to Rudnick and Wolf in 1978. It's, I, I got a pretty serious real estate practice um, with a lot of I know, very interesting, iconic people that, that you and I both have had the privilege to be around and work with. Um, tell me, tell me what it was like, um, you know, coming into a profession that was dominated by men. Well, you had to let a lot of things roll off your back. That's for sure. Um, but it had some curious advantages. Um, and I bet other women who came along about when I did would say the same thing. Um, even though it seemed like a disadvantage, it was probably an advantage in one way. And that is that people didn't really see you coming. They didn't expect you to be terrifically well-prepared and knowledgeable. And so you could blindside them kind of <laughs> um, in negotiations. You know, you, they were maybe expecting that, um, that you didn't know what you were doing or that you would be a tough negotiator. So it was, a, it was somewhat of an advantage. The other thing I'll say about that period is that my perspective was always, you know, you, you've, you've only got to fight the battles that are really going to matter to you. And that goes back to letting things roll off your back. I, I, my line in the sand was always the work and the people. Did I, did I get to work on the best deals, the most complex deals? And did I get to work with the people in the firm that I considered to be the strongest lawyers? That was, that was my criterion. And it really worked out pretty well. Uh, oh, it's interesting that some of those things you had to roll, let roll off your back are surprisingly present today, probably. Uh, Did you have, it's funny, I think about my early years, and we're not, we started about the same time, and there was a woman, woman partner at my firm there who was just as smart as anybody who could be. She was, she was a business lawyer. She joined us from Covington. Um, and and I, I, we, we looked up to her and said, boy, she was really impressive. Did you have any woman to, to look up to, any to mentor you when you were starting? No, nobody. I, the, I was actually, I wasn't the first woman at the firm, but I was one of the handful of the first. And I believe the most senior women at the firm were only one year ahead of me out of law school. Right. Um, and they were wonderful to me. Um, I remember I remember one time I was working on something and I called one of them and said, look, I'm supposed to no negotiate with the title company uh, that they drop certain exceptions or insure or, 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 you know, take accept insurance over or something. And I said, what is my leverage over the title insurance company? At which point she burst out laughing, of course. <laughs> Um, but that, that was how, uh, 
naive I was and how helpful those other women who were just a year ahead of me were who could answer stupid questions. Yeah, that's great. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you got it into the college in 1992, I believe. I think actually, uh, I looked today, we were in the same class um, uh-huh. enough. Um, and there were only a couple other women in that class. Acro uh, obviously was very challenging. We could talk about that. But tell, tell us about your sort of early recollections of um, being part of the college. Well, first of all, that our first meeting, my first meeting was in Chicago, actually, um, in the fall of that year. And I was also lucky enough to have Howard Kane as a partner. And I remember at the first Thursday night gathering when I showed up, um, Howard took me around the room and introduced me to everybody that he thought I should know. And that was it. So uh, my, my early uh, memories are that it was incredibly stimulating to be, around. of course, there were people I knew in the college that I'd done deals with, et cetera, as well as my own partners. But um, I, it was, I loved the program. I love just immersing yourself in, you know, what we do and nobody else in the world is all that interested in <laughs> for a couple of days. And of course, the collegiality was a big draw and some of my uh, best and closest friends today are people that I originally met in Acro. Right, right. And I, I, I remember watching in those early years this strong affinity group, of, you know, among you know, the, the, the small number, strong but small number of women in the college, you, Beverly, Nina, Carol, and others. Tell us about that and sort of how that came about and what role it played for you both inside the college and professionally? Well, I think that the, the of course, I wasn't around when the, the women's group very first started meeting, I, I think, although it was pretty soon after that. I remember one of the first ones I went to was at Nina's, so that must have been at that Chicago meeting. But in any event, um, I think it was it was a way to uh, foster community, you know, and to, and to bring people into... Um, you know, who were walking in cold to their first meeting, for example, to, to give them a community of people that they met early on. We used we met, I think, usually on Thursday nights and um, to, you know, give them some some faces in the room that were familiar to them. As the college got bigger and there were uh, occasional complaints, uh, if, and you'll remember this, um, that why do the women need to have this separate event? Um, I, I, my answer was always, look, we're getting to be a large group in any way to create smaller affinity groups or community groups is good. Um, you guys go create whatever, whatever you want to create. And then, as you know, we always said men were welcome to join us. And Joe Forte was always there. And Joe was always there. You're right. (laughs) And others dropped in occasionally. (laughs) And would you, do, do you think that the group of women had both, not just because of the Thursday night gatherings, which were terrific, I think, and a good thing, that you worked harder um, amongst the group to find opportunities to work together? Um, I can't say that specifically about the women, 
but I think that ACRO members in general, for sure, um, it, it, you know, if you if you knew the and, and this may not be exactly the question you're asking, Jay, but um, if 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 you knew that many people who were prominent practitioners in your area, it was extremely helpful in your in your work. You know, very often the person on the other side of the deal was somebody you knew and who knew you. And so it sort of got rid of some of that initial posturing that went on, I think, more in those days probably than it does today. Maybe, maybe, right? For sure, back then. So you became the third female president of the college in 2005, mm -hmm. um, which is in some ways, you know, a, a, a real, um, you know, reflection of, you know, we're, 2005, we're almost 30 years old at that point, and we're only on our third female president. But that, be that as it may, we're obviously in a much better situation now. Um, I think I counted up that if you count through Jane, we're up to seven. Um, uh, and we've had a great, great run of women present the last several years with Marilyn and Jane and, 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 and others. And, um, but what, what reflections sort of what, from your tenure as president leading the college and sort of what that meant to you and what, what you accomplished? Well, of course, it was, uh, to me, a, a tremendous honor uh, to be in this role. Um, and we, had, we always do have a great board of governors. I also had, I came right behind Wayne Hyatt, I think, who was a good friend and, uh, and a great model and mentor. Um, and also, as you know, the, the ACRA leadership letter is such that by the time you become president, you've got, um, you've had quite a few years of, or several years of intense experience, leadership experience under your belt. Um, but I, the most important thing to me was to maintain, you know, the high standards in the CLE. I, re, I can remember Ann Sagert was uh, chairing the program committee when I was president, which was a huge plus for me because she, Ann did such a fabulous job that you just knew um, that everything was going to come off without a hitch. One story I remember, I, and this was at a meeting in New York when I was president, we were in all in the ballroom doing the program. And of course, you're on edge or, or about everything when you're the president, you know, it's everything has got to be perfect. And I remember all of a sudden we were in the Waldorf Astoria and all of a sudden there was this hammering very loud in the room. I mean, obviously from somebody, someplace, you know, just on the other side of a, a, one of those movable walls. And before I could panic, I saw out of the corner of my eye and moving towards the door and he knew this hammering person was going to be shut down immediately. Um, what one thing, you know, gosh, it's been, seems like a long time now. Um, I remember being uh, an issue that was really under debate in those years. And it, this was, you know, Jay, you sent me the Genesis paper containing a lot of the early minutes, et cetera, uh, from Acryl. And uh, it was interesting to me to look back and realize that one thing I wanted to focus on was membership standards. And that was one of the hot, of course, early topics of discussion. Um, and of course, the big issue was always the CLE requirement. 
the writing and speaking requirement. Um, that's one issue I remember uh, dealing with as president. Yes, it's fast in those early minutes. And Steve was on the um, standards committee, whatever it was. Yeah. I, that's because like you, I was surely not around then. Reading that the so-called give back requirement was right in the beginning um, that they focused on that. And then there's some very interesting discussion too about how um, some of the things we still deal with today, both on the give back requirement, but on the separation between the ABA real property section. Oh yeah. That that was really, which I never ever imagined, was one of the primary motivations because not be, because they just wanted to do something different. Um, uh -huh. and on, 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 you know, you know, government things, lobbying things, and, and having their voice heard. So all those 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 amazing um, people, right? That created this this organization that we all benefited by, really set the tone and set the standards right at the beginning that we're still, you know, addressing and dealing with today. Mm -hmm. For sure. So yeah, so it's it, it, it's look uh, uh, part of the part of the. The motivation here has been to recognize some of those early people that really created this world for us. And you, you, you mentioned one and Howard Kane, of course, who were both part, both members of the Howard Kane fan club. Um, and and um, yeah, so the college has been great for for so many of us and for so many reasons. So let let let's talk a little bit more about your amazing career. You you you, you know you, you had developed wonderful relationships with great clients like Prudential. And Pritzker and Penny and all those kinds of interesting things. One thing I was thinking about, and you sort of touched on this, you 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 mentored lots of great people, Allison being one of whom we just talked about, and others in the firm. And then you came to me. You were the first female um, leader of the practice group. I think you were the first female member of the firm's executive committee. Um, so we got to work together on lots of that stuff. And then you came to me um, and said, you know, you decided you're going to stop. You know, but you didn't come to me and say you were going to stop in one month or six months or one year. You came to me three or four years in advance and said, I, I, I'm thinking about this in a very thoughtful, orderly way so that I can continue to not only mentor all these great people that many of them are now still partners at the firm, but how to transition clients, um, which is a, a big issue today. Right. But you, you, you were ahead of that. Like you were ahead of a lot of things. So tell, tell us and share the sort of thoughts you had about how you sort of came to so thoughtfully think through how you were going to transition from your professional practice to your, the next phase of your life. Well, for one thing, this is next phase, uh, but I was terrified that I was going to be bored. Let me back up and say one thing, which is... Um, sad thing but it was a big factor my dad died at 64 and so he never really had a retirement Remember. and yeah so for many years I had you know all my financial planning assumed I think it assumed that I was going to quit completely at 64 but as I got closer to that I realized I was still having good time and uh, I wanted to develop what my I, I wanted to, to, re, to retire completely with a list of three big projects to work on, which I did. Um, that's my after work life. Um, but um, 
as far as transitioning clients is concerned, of course, that was a huge, uh, a huge thing for me. But for years, I had been building up teams around clients um, of more junior lawyers. And by the time I actually did completely stop working, those relationships were pretty solid. Um, so, um, but, it, but that was years of work, you know, to, to make the clients depend as much on those people as they ended up doing and, and to, to um, uh, be comfortable with them, uh, et cetera. So anyway, that, that was a kind of a long-term effort. But when, when we got, when I got to the, the end of 09, as I was telling you before, um, by that time I had now mapped up what my next, <laughs> what my, my next things were going to be. And it was interesting. I always thought when I had more time, I would do more pro bono work in, in the real estate area, obviously. But I ended up being completely differently focused and focusing more on education. Um, I had for a long time uh, had a lot of interest in Girl Scouts. I was a Girl Scout myself, and it was very, um, that background was, I thought, was always very helpful to me. I'd been the president of the Chicago Girl Scout Council for many years. Um, but I, I sort that, and that was related. But what I ended up being interested in was education. Um, I, I went on the board of my undergraduate school. I was, I also served on the board of a um, charter school in Chicago that was the only all girls school in Chicago public schools. And then with the firm, I worked on a really interesting pro bono project involving um, uh, folks in Woodlawn, which is the, on the south side in Chicago, um, a traditionally African-American area right by uh, the University of Chicago campus. Um, and um, our firm was serving as general counsel to the board of um, an institution that was trying to create a promise zone in Woodlawn. I don't know if you're familiar with the Harlem one, but there's been a book written about it, et cetera. And so we were their legal counsel. And because I had more time than anybody else at that point, um, that we had to, uh, to, to accomplish what they wanted to do, we had to really dig into the Illinois school code, which is the most arcane um, piece of legislation you could ever see. Fortunately, the guy who at that time was the um, general counsel of the of Chicago Public Schools, which was very supportive of this effort, actually, I think they were pretty desperate to, you know, throw anything against the wall and see if it helped. Um, but anyway, their, their general counsel was really helpful to us and that he would we, we could go to him and say, look, we can't find the answer to this in the code or there or it's it's it, there are contradictions and he kind of would say you're right or we'll look at this, et cetera. So anyway, I had that big legal project going on as well, but they were all educational, uh, education related, which is fascinating because, I mean, it's it's more fun, honestly, than doing real estate legal work because um, you had to learn a whole new area, which is always inherently interesting and keeps you, keeps you busy mentally. Um, and although ironically, I, I told you a minute ago before we started recording, I think that I'm presently doing a real estate deal for my college. So 
You can't get away from your roots. No, well, you can't duck what you know, <laughs> you know, right. when you, uh, when others know it also and are looking to you. Well, for you, it's right. It's merging two of your great passions, education and real estate. Uh-huh. That's right. right? So, and, and I will just comment that your success in transitioning um, clients to the teams that you built, the, the, the proof is in the ultimate pudding. Here we are 12, 13 years later, and those clients are still with those same people, some, some at this firm, some at other firms. But you did right. such a tragic job that those clients have all stayed um, with those people, and they've all been very successful growing those relationships. So, so when you said you had three boxes that you were going to check at retirement, I'm sure one was travel. Was one of them being a, a uh, owner of a vineyard? No, <laughs> you know, that, that wine is, of course, I like wine, but wine is really my husband's passion. And it was his dream uh, to make, grow and make his own wine. And it became practical for us because we had a property, a house in Michigan that had a big open sort of field as part of the property. And um, the other element of luck was we became really close friends with a guy who is one of the really fine winemakers in southwestern Michigan. So we only have 250 vines. Um, and so it would never have worked for us to do this if we couldn't, if we didn't have his mentorship and also um, his equipment, um, because nobody stomps grapes anymore. So <laughs> when it's time to press grapes, we truck them to Jim's winery and, and uh, do it there. Of course, we always turn it into a big party. The, both the picking and the winemaking. Great. Oh, good. I didn't realize that was just, that was Alan's passion. Okay, good. Uh -huh. So, so if you look back now um, with tremendous, tremendous experiences and perspective um, and we're sure that the, the profession, professions made, um, you know, lots of progress on, on, on diversity, although there's plenty, plenty of ground cover and we're, we're not where we need to be, but, you know, we've made a lot of progress. So it's obviously very different than it was when, when you and your peers started. What would your advice be now to, um, you know, women coming into the profession and, how to, and, and women progressing through the profession? Well, one thing, and this applies really not just to women, but to, maybe more so to women, but to, but to junior lawyers, across the board, I think. And I, it's, it's an, maybe an unsolvable uh, conundrum. And of course, as, as we've said, I, I've really been not involved with a, with a law firm for 13 years now. Um, but it's the work-life balance issue. And I, I'd be really interested to hear what those of you who are still actively doing this would say, but about the impact of the pandemic. Um, and, and people's having gotten used to working at home and how that you see that all playing out. But in any event, I think you just, you've got to, again, you've got to get your systems in place uh, if you're going to do that balance. And as you know, we, we only have one child, but we did have a child. Um, and um, so you've, you can't, I realized early on that we were going to have to have uh, at least before she became school age, full-time live-in childcare, because we, um, if, if I was 
late closing a deal and Alan was doing a party, there was nobody there with the baby. So anyway, things like that. I mean, it took with Alan and I spent a lot of time thinking through how we were going to do this, but there were sure sacrifices. I mean, there were, there were, uh, and there were, you know, late nights when I would have liked and felt like I should have been home uh, doing other things. But, um, but that's something I think that people are struggling with now. And I don't, maybe we'll just, yeah, maybe it's not solvable. You really, the amount of time that you have to devote to your career, you've just got, if you, if you want to have the career at a high level, you've got to do it. Now, but another thing that I've thought about it, or I, I, I was, I've observed actually, while I was still working is that I think some younger people see, look at us and see what it takes to get the brass ring. And they don't, they decide they don't want it or they don't care that much about it. So you've also got to decide how much you care. You know, there are different levels uh, at which you can practice certainly, or have a career in law, but you've got to decide, you know, what you want the shape of that career to be. And if you really do want to do it at the highest levels, there, there are sacrifices and you've got to be prepared to make them. Yes. I, I think everything you say is, even though you've been away for 13 years, is spot on to what's happening today. The work-life balance, right? I think that that's, I don't know if it's been enhanced, but for sure, my daughter would say, who's been home working from home for two years with a two and a half year old, that it's been a fabulous benefit to be able to do that and be around mm-hmm. her the way she never would have been if she was going to the office five days a week. But the challenge, and we were just talking about this on Chuck's call this morning, the challenge is getting people to come return to the office. We don't say, as somebody once corrected me, it's not return to work, it's return to office. Because sure. and, and you both, as you said, at the beginning of your career and at the end of your professional career are, are a great example of the mentoring and the importance of being around good people that mentor you like Howard um, and, and Paul and others and and also people that you mentored like like Allison and Sam and that whole group of folks and Peter so I think I think there's a big challenge in the industry today a big big challenge in the and it's in all the professional services groups for sure the law firms are having a tougher time because um, I, I think the law firms are a little bit more timid in uh, requiring people to come back to work like the investment banks did from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the jury's out on how, and that, as you said, it's not a, a big aspect of it is for, for the women with kids. Um, and, 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 and then, but it's, but it's both male and female, this, this issue of getting people back into the office so that they can be mentored by the Allison Mitchells and Fred Kleins and, and all these other people that are really great. Entering. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's like most things in life, right? It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And we're, and we're not going to have any answers, let alone easy answers, I think, until we could sort of look back and see four or five years from now, just like, just like in 2008 and nine, right? When we looked around and said, why don't we have any third or fourth or fifth year real estate associates, right? Oh, yeah. Because we'd gotten rid of them all. In 2000, you know, one, two after the tech tech bust and everything else sort of, you know, hit 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 a wall. And then there, we didn't have any mid-level real estate associates, and we had mm-hmm. to sort of back and fix that. And and I think we're going to have to go. We're going to have to figure out how to mentor 
um, and train um, and get those people the benefit of what they can't possibly get over Zoom um, unless they're in the same room with, with these, these wonderful lawyers that are out there. For sure. And that, you know, going back <clears throat> to the beginning of my career, I, I, I didn't mention this, but this is something that was really, really important to me. Obviously, we all know you don't gra graduate from law school really knowing how to uh, conduct yourself. I mean, you know, some things, but not how to do in a negotiation, for example. And I always felt from the very beginning that I wanted to work with as many different, not only great, the best lawyers in the firm, in the practice area, but also as many different ones as I could, because you, you are never going to successfully adopt anybody's style. It's going to have to be your own. But the best way to develop your own is to really see a lot of very skillful people handling themselves in these situations. Um, that was really very important to me. And you had no shortage of those, right? No, that's for sure. And I, I was very lucky. You've mentioned Paul Rudnick a, a couple of times, but I was extremely lucky that Paul was my main mentor, really from my the end of my first year of practice. Um, nobody could have had a stronger um, uh, mentor or a better friend than Paul was to me. And he was also a member of the college. Yeah. Very cool. Back when you and I got in. So let me um, close with a couple of questions that are a little bit you know, off the track of what we've been doing, but you know, actually you, you've touched on something. So as you look back today, given everything that you've done and accomplished, what would you tell your 25-year-old self to do differently? Gosh. Um. <laughs> take accounting for lawyers in law school. <laughs> I had to do it in night school after I had graduated. Um, but um, you know what? Enjoy it more. And I, you know, nobody could have enjoyed practicing law as much as me. I liked even things other people hate. I love drafting complicated documents. I like doing puzzles. It's very similar feeling. Um, I love negotiation, um, all of those things. Uh, but I love what I'm doing now too. So um, it's it's been you know a great career, but it's been a great post career also. Okay, good. And my last question then is: If you had not become a lawyer, what what other career do you think you would have chosen? It just seems so natural to me right now. I, again, going back to the fact that I think I was the most natural person to become a lawyer in the world. The fact that I didn't go straight to law school from undergraduate school still is, is just a total reflection of the attitude toward women and careers at that time. Um, that Nobody, you know, I think one of my classmates went straight to law school and her father was a lawyer. Actually, he was a congressman at that point. Um, another one became the chief judge of the uh, South Carolina Supreme Court, but I, but she, I don't think went straight to law school. So uh, sign of the times. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to look back at those women that were graduating law school 
and of course there were not that many of them, but it was growing, starting to grow back then, right? But how many of those women actually did other things and, and didn't go straight? And when, and when that tipping point occurred, right? Right. Uh, very interesting. Okay, well, Portia, thank you so much for taking the time this morning and for sharing your perspectives, not, not just on ACRA, but on a fabulously accomplished career and, and all the great things you've done in your life. Well, thank you, Jay. And as you know, I always like talking to you. So anytime, I miss you. <laughs> thanks, Portia. Okay, thanks.